0: Amgen made the year's largest deal buying Horizon Therapeutics. This was late in the year. It would have really been a slow M&A year if not for this one. Amgen saved the day in a way.
1: That's Eric Saganowski, a staff writer here at Fierce Pharma. Later, we'll hear more from him about the top 10 pharma M&A deals of 2022. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is the Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce Medtech, and Fierce Pharma. Today is Friday, February 10th. Stick with us, we've got all the biopharma and medtech industry news you need. Johnson & Johnson is overhauling its pharmaceutical wing. Max Bayer reported this with Fierce Pharma after obtaining internal J&J documents and town hall footage from an anonymous source. j infectious disease division is merging with the vaccines unit, which will be led by vaccines chief Penny Heaton. As a part of the business change, J&J is winding down numerous programs, including further development of its COVID and HIV vaccines and therapies for hepatitis B and D. Because of the changes, J&J is laying off employees across the globe, in countries including the U.S., Belgium, and the Netherlands. At the town hall with employees, Heaton would not specify how much the company was downsizing. J&J wouldn't either. In a statement emailed to Fierce, the company said it was evolving. The shift in research and development comes as J&J is spinning off its consumer business as a standalone company. This places added pressure on the performance of its pharmaceutical wing. The news of layoffs follows an earlier round of cuts at Johnson & Johnson Services, which helps with pharmaceutical supplies. Those layoffs were first announced last October. Gilead Sciences' cancer drug, Trudelvi has won an FDA approval in the most common type of breast cancer. As Angus Lulu reports, Trudelvi is now approved to treat HR-positive, HER2-negative breast cancer. This disease subtype represents about two-thirds of all breast cancer cases. To be eligible for the drug, patients must have tried at least three prior therapies. RBC Capital Markets analysts recently issued an investor note. Because there is a large patient population, the analysts think that Trudelvi could reach $1.1 billion in peak sales in previously treated HR-positive HER2-negative breast cancer. But Trudelvi faces a competitor. AstraZeneca and Daiichi Sankyo recently got an FDA approval for their drug in HER2 to treat HER2-low breast cancer. HER2-low cancer was traditionally considered HER2-negative, so there's an overlap between the two drugs target patient population and in her tooth, clinical data, appears more impressive than Trudelvi's. Advocates are petitioning four different governments to either revoke or suspend Vertex Pharmaceuticals' patent for Tricopta. Tricopta is a cystic fibrosis medication that helps defective CFTR proteins work better. These proteins are critical for maintaining the saltwater balance on certain membranes. The problem is, the drug is reportedly out of reach for patients in all low- and middle-income countries, as well as some high-income countries. As Fraser Canstein reports, even in countries where TriCofta is available, like the U.S., the drug's cost is steep, around $326,000 per patient per year. That's where advocacy groups like Vertex Save Us and Just Treatment come in. They are attempting to secure affordable generic access to Vertex's drug primarily by leveraging compulsory licenses. Compulsory licensing is a World Trade Organization provision that allows governments to permit someone else to produce a patented product or process without the patent's owner's consent. That's the approach the groups are taking in Brazil, Ukraine, and South Africa taken a slightly different approach in India, where the advocates have asked the governments to revoke Vertex patents on CFTR drugs. Vertex spokesperson Heather Nichols told Kansteiner, the company believes intellectual property rights are critical to encourage and protect innovation. Nichols also said that Vertex aims to provide its medications to as many cystic fibrosis patients around the world as possible. Earlier this week, Roche announced some good news for people with the rare and life-threatening blood condition PNH. The news is positive data from its phase 3 study evaluating crovalimab. But what's good news for some is bad news for others. Because now Alexion, which is a part of AstraZeneca, would have some competition if crovalimab gets approved. Alexion has dominated the market for PNH drugs for years. It's racked up billions of dollars in sales of its two therapies, Saliris and Altamiris. And other drug developers are also trying to get a leg in the game, like Novartis and Regeneron in collaboration with El Nylum. And they're so close. They're in phase three trials or nearing approval submissions. In fact, one company, Apellis Pharmaceuticals, won an approval in 2021 for its drug called Mpavili. But Alexion still dominates the market for these PNH drugs, the question is, for how long? Roche is running three phase 3 trials of crovalimab, and this week's press release from Roche suggests that one of the studies met the co-primary endpoints. The release said that crovalimab achieved disease control and was non-inferior to Soliris, but is yet to share any data from the study. With these results, along with data from another trial, Roche says it plans to seek approval for crovalimab around the world. As for the competition, Crovolimab is thought to have an advantage over Soliris when it comes to the administration and dosing schedule, but the case over other marketed and pipeline contenders is less clear-cut. Coming up next, we'll hear two fierce editors discussing the top 10 pharma M&A deals of 2022, and later, we'll dive deep into what Amgen's purchase of Horizon means for M&A in 2023. But first, an announcement. The Fierce team is at it again, profiling the most influential people in biopharma. So for the 2023 edition, we're asking for your input. There are a lot of new challenges in biopharma right now, but there are always new leaders and new ideas to help meet the moment. We're asking for you to help identify visionaries at both the scientific and and at the business ends of our industry. Who in biopharma is leading the push for clinical diversity? Or who is rewriting the drug launch playbook? Who has a promising new cancer treatment approach? Change has been a constant for the industry lately, so we need your help telling the story of where the industry is going and who's going to be steering the ship. Please submit your nomination by midnight Eastern on February 24th. Go to fiercepharma.com or look for the link in our show notes. 2022's slate of life sciences M&A deals didn't meet expectations, but the year still featured tens of billions of dollars worth of biopharma acquisitions. Leading companies Pfizer, Amgen, GSK, and more got involved in the action, and 2023 should bring plenty more M&A fireworks. Here to talk about the action is Pierce's Karida Anderson and Eric Saganowski.
2: So, Eric, I figured that you know before we put 2022 completely in our rearview mirror, we should really talk about merger and acquisition activity from last year. M&A is certainly so important to the biopharma world. You know, it makes the biopharma world go around, and it's often thought of as an indicator of the sector's potential. So it's certainly not uncommon, Eric, you've been doing this for so long and I'm sure like year over year, you know, whenever we're like ending one year and moving into the next year, there's always a ton of chatter about, oh, the next year is going to be a big one for M&A deals and ending 2021 and going into 2022 is no exception to that rule, that said, though, I think one key aspect, at least from my point of view, that was different entering 2022 was that we were, one, really coming off a particularly low year of MA activity in 2021. And then secondly, I mean, big pharma players just had a ton of money to make deals, right? And to be more specific, instead of just saying a ton of money, um, SBB Leering put up put out a report estimating that across eighteen large cap companies, they had $1.7 trillion um, in, you know, firepower to ink deals. But 2022 did not pan out to be the biggest year for MA uh, deal making, at least in terms of overall value. Um, it was up compared to 2021, that's for sure. So in it, last year, the 10 biggest biopharma MA deals made around 65 billion, whereas 2021 was just at 53 billion. But like I said, that was a particularly low year because if you dial back to 2020, the 10 biggest was 97 billion, and then 2019 was a whopping 200 billion.
0: Yeah, we're definitely seeing a different approach for these companies. Um, Like you mentioned, 2019, the two biggest deals would have eclipsed, you know, recent years. Oh,
2: good Uh, point, yeah.
0: BMS buying Celgene and Avi buying Allergan. And we just haven't seen deals like that since.
2: Yeah, those were sizable. So what what were we seeing in the, at least in this list of the 10 biggest deals from last year, what were some of the trends in terms of the types of deals that were uh, signed?
0: Sure. Yeah. From the big pharma side, it seems like they're shying away from mega mergers and instead focusing on so called bolt on deals. These are deals where they want to expand in a certain disease area or with a certain technology platform. So they're smaller deals, you know, five to 10 billion, 15 billion. And we're seeing big pharma companies move into this strategy more than their larger deals like the two I mentioned.
2: Yeah. Do you want to talk through like some of the examples of Voltons from this from last year?
0: Definitely. Um, Pfizer has a lot of money from their pandemic wins. So they did two of them. They bought global blood therapeutics and a sickle cell disease called Oxbrita. And they also bought Biohaven uh, CGRP migraine franchise. So these are two oral drugs that Pfizer thinks its marketing team can get the most out of. Amgen made the year's largest deal buying Horizon Therapeutics. This was late in the year. It would have really been a slow M&A year if not for this one. So <laughs> Amgen saved the day in a way. With Horizon, they expanded rare diseases. So, And then also GSK bought two smaller biotechs with vaccine and oncology offerings. And BMS made another deal for Turning Point Therapeutics.
2: Yeah, so that's like almost five of the top 10 deals, right? So bolt-on buyouts, definitely a big theme. And probably not a surprise, you hinted at this, Eric, as well, um, in terms of companies staying away from those mega mergers. And that's probably because the, the Federal Trade Commission has definitely renewed its focus on analyzing whether those mega mergers hurt competition. So it sort of makes sense that we saw that play out last year. But another interesting trend from our top 10 list was that we also saw smaller companies merging. That in and of itself is you know, not unusual for sure. But the fact that they made that top 10 list means that they also spent a lot of money, even though they were small companies.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, these are some deals that we might not have seen in some of the major uh, years from before. So in that category, we have Biocon picking up Viatris's biosimilars. Um, UCB buying Zogenix and Sumitomo buying the rest of MyoVant. Already in 2023, we're seeing some similar size deals um, from Ipsen and Chiesi.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I think these are the trends that we'll probably watch for going in uh, now that we're in 2023. You know, will the mega mergers come back or do we just continue to see the bolt ons and the smaller mergers? So digging into I think another thing that I thought would be interesting to dissect a little bit is uh, to talk about the premiums that companies paid last year. The premiums range from a low of 33% to a high of 122% over the selling company's market value at the time. I think you mentioned uh, BMS's bolt-on deal for Turning Point. That's the one that had the biggest premium at that 122% uh, point that I mentioned. The next biggest premium came from Amgen and ChemoCentrics at 116%. And in terms of final values, though, those two acquisitions, while they were the biggest premiums, were in terms of total value at number four and number five. So just, you know, I think that's an interesting way to look at how much Uh, these companies were valued at, you know, on the public markets, and then how much the buyer came in and said, hey, we're going to give you this much more because we we see that potential in your pipeline, you know, and then of course, there's like no list is complete without a mention of Pfizer. So, like you said, Pfizer had two buyouts, uh, that made it in. Those deals were second and third in terms of overall value, but in terms of premium, in premiums, um, interestingly. One was at the lower end uh, with the Biohaven purchase that you might my- mentioned for their migraine drugs, um, which was 33% on the low end. But on the higher end for Pfizer was the other, the sickle cell disease company, Global Blood Therapeutics for 101%. So between those two, Pfizer spent $17 billion.
0: <laughs> yeah. And if you just think about it from the uh, perspective of the acquiring company, the Big Pharma's these premiums aren't really a huge deal. They're buying s- smaller companies in comparison. So they're, they're really paying up for the technology that they see promise for
2: that's such a good com- such a good comment because yeah it in some ways it could be considered uh, maybe just a little bit more than chump change for Pfizer to spend that much and it spent more it had other MA deals that didn't make the top 10 list obviously as well as collaborations do you want to say um a little bit more about uh particularly i think like the biohaven deal was so unique
0: yeah so they had actually signed up to help market biohaven's drug A few years back. And last year, they decided they wanted full access to it. So they decided to buy Biohaven's CGRP franchise. But before the deal went through, Biohaven spun off some of its pipeline into another company that's still called Biohaven, and it's publicly traded. So Biohaven is still operating, but Pfizer decided to pick up certain drugs from the old Biohaven.
2: Yeah, just a very interesting deal structure because it did essentially buy all of Biohaven's shares at the time the deal was struck, but then before it closed, like you said, Biohaven split this out split out a company. Um, I don't think I've seen something like this before. So it'll be really interesting to see how this sort of, you know, plays out. Yeah, I agree. We, we definitely had a few uh, interesting deals, right, uh, Eric? Like there were a few of these that you know either played out over a number of years or there was a bidding war afoot. Um, and we can't get into all of those details, unfortunately. But there's one other thing that I thought was interesting in, in just looking at it from the point of view of the premium spade, like we've been discussing. And the one that caught my attention was one that's was in the middle of the road, not on the high end, not on the low end. And, you know, often the middle of the road is quite telling. And that was Amgen's deal for Horizon, which like we've discussed was another bolt on deal. So, Amgen essentially paid a 48% premium um, to Horizon's closing price. A little asterisk here, um, and this is not the only uh, M&A deal of its sort, but just talking about Amgen and Horizon, that 48 premium was above Horizon's value the day before Horizon went public about the talks that it was having with Amgen and not just Amgen's, uh, Sanofi and Johnson and Johnson, and then things you know played out over a couple of months, and Amgen won out in the end. And by that time, when Amgen and Horizon announced their final deal, um, Horizon share price had obviously skyrocketed based on all of this M and A chatter. So at the end of the day, if you look at it. You know, compare what Hamgen, Amgen is paying for Horizon just before. Um, uh, compare it to Horizon's value just before that final deal was announced. Is just about twenty percent over closing price. Still a good premium, but not as much as it would have been had that chatter not come to come forward to the public and like you know uh, bumped up Horizon's uh, share price. But definitely. Em- Right. And I, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I'll just
0: add. Yeah. I'll just add there that one reason people love reading those deal breakdowns that you mentioned yeah. with Sanofi and J and J also being interested is it gives an indication of which buyers are still out there. The companies yes. that didn't end up striking these deals, they're still interested in. You know, in Horizon's case, a rare disease drug maker. So right. this gives people an idea for which companies are still out there.
2: Which companies are still out there willing to buy with what kind of money, and importantly, like you said, what kind of assets they're exactly. interested in, yeah, and you know whichever way you slice that premium value for um, horizon it was still enough to put Amgen at the top of the list in terms of total deal value, right? So all told, Amgen ended up paying $27.8 billion. So that's a whole $10.7 billion more than Pfizer's two biggest deals. It's also, I thought, remarkable because Amgen's Horizon deal was also the biggest ever for Amgen itself. It Uh, Pretty much dwarfed Amgen's last big deal, which came 22 years ago for 16 billion.
0: Definitely, and uh, one thing I'll add is that this might not have been the largest deal in 2022 had Merck ended up buying Cgen. There were rumors or reports during the middle of the year, over the summer, that Merck was interested in buying Cgen, but. They never ended up coming together. This was going to be around a $40 billion deal. Mm-hmm. So it, it would have mm-hmm. been the largest last year, but it never happened.
2: Right. I had completely forgotten about that one. So good good that you brought it up. And I know you also, um, in you know, sort of keeping in what you were saying earlier, hints about who might be looking to spend this year besides Amgen, there are a few other companies that are facing co- a lot of competition, particularly from biosimilars. So your thoughts on that, Eric?
0: Yes. Uh, I was thinking AbbVie is a candidate for potential Mm. M&A. They haven't done anything since Allergan, but that was obviously a huge deal. So maybe they're busy incorporating that and focusing on some of their own offerings. But they have Humira losing exclusivity this week, actually. and This is the industry's largest drug by sales. So we'll be watching it over the next weeks and months to see how they respond.
2: With MA activity, it's so tough to say. And everybody always predicts a big year. But what do you think?
0: Yeah, I expect a similar year as 2022. The companies, the big companies, definitely have money to spend and they have patents they're coming up against, patent expirations. So I expect another average year, I guess is the way I'll put it.
2: I share your opinion on that. I, you know, despite everybody talking about how much money pharma has to spend and, you know, it, Quickest route to growth is certainly through buying biotechs, but there are other headwinds that I think will possibly get in, in the way of m and activity, particularly in terms of those big, eye-popping, you know, buyouts.
0: Right, and there's a lot of political pr- potential political pressure this year. Elizabeth Warren sent a letter to the FTC with concerns over the Amgen Horizon deal. So, yep. Companies don't want to land in the public spotlight for the wrong reasons, so that's another reason they might stay away from the big deals.
2: Yeah, and I have to say, I'm, I'm with Elizabeth Warren on this. Personally, I wouldn't be too worried if there's a relative lack of consolidation you know, the FTC is right to concentrate on anti-competitive practices and mega mergers and big buyouts certainly fall in that category. So if we see only, you know, two or a few 11-digit deals like we saw this year, uh, last year, if we see the same thing this year, I don't know that that would be the worst for society writ, writ
1: large.
0: <laughs> Not at all.
1: Last year, biopharma m and was largely non-existent but we started to see signs of change in December. Fierce Pharma staff writer Fraser Kansteiner and Kevin Dunlevy discussed last year's largest buyout, Amgen's $28 billion deal for Horizon Therapeutics. What does it mean for the potential buyer's market? Here they are to explore that question.
3: Hey, what's up, Kevin? How's it going?
4: Hey, Fraser.
3: So, uh, you know, normally in the team's chat when we're talking uh, at work, we're discussing movies and uh, oftentimes Irish films. Uh, but today, we're going to be talking about uh, mergers and acquisitions. Uh, specifically, I want to talk a bit about some of 2022's biggest deals and and what those sort of portend uh, as we look ahead into 2023. Uh, and before we jump into Amgen's Horizon buyout, uh, I definitely want to talk about that because it was it was definitely last year's biggest deal. It was twice as large as any other uh, at $28 billion. Uh But before we get into that, uh, I do just want to go over some of the trends that we saw last year. Uh, and it's probably important to name up top that, you know, obviously the market was not kind to a lot of companies.
4: Yeah, definitely, Frazier. The, the uh, deal value was way down in 2022, uh, if you look at some of those years pre-pandemic, we had huge deals: Bristol Myers Squibb and Celgene, seventy-four billion; AbbVie and Allergen, sixty-four billion; mm-hmm. Takeda and Shire, uh, fifty-six billion. And it wasn't just pharma. I think we tend to look at this uh, from us, from our bubble, you know, the biopharma bubble. But it was across the whole economy that M and A was down. There was a forty-one percent drop in deal value throughout all industries last year. And really, there was a perfect storm of conditions that made companies more risk-averse, just a lot more volatility in public markets. The Ukraine war didn't help. Uh, that kind of wreaked havoc with supply chains. And uh, inflation and rising interest rates complicate MA financing a lot. Just to kind of sum it up, uh, sellers were hoping for prices of yesteryear and buyers were hoping for financing of yesteryear, and uh, neither one got those. Yeah, you talk about it being a perfect
3: storm, and I think we we definitely saw that across you know all different sectors of, of pharma and biopharma. You know, I also you and I cover manufacturing and and stuff like the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis, that that took a toll on, for instance, uh, g- like generics manufacturing in Europe. Um, but, but I think it's important to note, and this is something that you know, you said, and I get reminded of when I talk to others in the field is, you know, this isn't unique to pharma, um, you know, and that goes for all the layoffs we've been seeing as well. It's happening just across industries. (laughs) But yeah, so, you know, thinking about biopharma specifically and biopharma deal making, we did actually see some big deals go down, uh, just not at the level of previous years. And I think what was really interesting was the timing. So, you know, the biggest deals of of 2022 came right at the tail end of the year. And and we'll get into. What that timing and sort of what the pace of, of deal making potentially says about 2023. Going back to what you were saying about a lot of the challenges faced, uh, I was checking out uh, a report from PwC that, that acknowledged that basically pharma experienced uh, a multi year low amid a bunch of different challenges like the ones you named the war in Ukraine, uh, inflation, that sort of thing. Uh, they also talked about some more technical, uh, kind of economic stuff going on. They, they mentioned risk-off sentiment and market dislocation, which, which basically mean respectively that companies either weren't investing or they were kind of pricing bizarrely just because of really stressful market conditions. Um, the good news is is PWC does sort of uh, foresee a bit of a rebound in, in 2023, and they specifically named that pharma and biotech MA is going to favor areas like oncology and, and immunology. But overall, they they predicted growth across pretty much every sector, with uh, investments being uh, foreseen in areas with you know like drugs targeting central nervous system and cardiovascular diseases too.
4: Yeah, Fraser, vaccines are another area where companies will be looking to become therapeutic leaders. I think, um, and that was certainly a play with GSK's acquisition of Afinovex. They have a twenty four valent pneumococcal candidate that really could compete with the next gen candidates of uh, well, not candidates anymore. They've been approved: Merck's 15 valent uh, vaccine and Pfizer's 20 valent vaccine, and that's a big market. Pfizer made five billion last year with its Prevnar franchise.
3: Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see also how you know some of the uh, vaccine players on the COVID front uh, recover. You know, Moderna. You know, kind of veering away from M and A for a second. They've had a lot of strong data recently kind of validating the rest of their mRNA pipeline, but they also recently made uh, their first acquisition. Uh, So it'll be curious to see what happens there. And I think you're right to point out there's this sort of pressure to become uh, a leader in, in you know, your respective field or a modality or what have you, whether it's a disease area or, again, like vaccines or you know, cell and gene therapy. Uh, so going back to that PWC report, um, they uh, those analysts predicted essentially that we're going to be seeing biotech deals in the vicinity of about $5 billion to $15 billion. Uh, they said that would be common. And they also outlined a sort of set of tactics, capabilities, tenants to keep in mind during the M&A cycle. So Again, uh, I think first and foremost, shareholders want their companies to be leaders in their respective fields. So obviously this means those companies need to be proactive when it comes to refreshing their portfolios, whether that's through development or as we're talking about here. Uh, through acquisitions. Uh, I thought interestingly, though, PwC said that at the same time, you know, it's important to hive off businesses that the analysts called subscale as well. So it's not just about focusing on high delivery assets. It's also about getting rid of parts of the business that aren't necessarily working. Something else they mentioned was that you know, M&A has always been used to keep farmers growing. And traditionally, mid-sized and big farmers have always had to collaborate with and, and scoop up smaller players, biotechs to keep their pipelines fresh and also to bring in quick revenues. Uh, but interestingly now, pharma is anticipating that it's, it's finally going to need to get more serious about not relying as much on pricing uh, launches at ludicrously high prices, or, or at least not being able to continue raising prices uh, year after year. And, you know, that's that's in large part because of new drug pricing policy like the Inflation Reduction Act and, and other bills that may pop up. And, and Kevin will talk a bit more about IRA in just a little bit. Um, but, you know, essentially, this is what pharma should have always been doing, but never really had to since there was zero pricing pressure and now with minimal pricing pressure. Uh, from IRA, companies are going to have to focus a bit more. But essentially, uh, PwC is saying that companies need to do these things at scale and stay agile in 2023, uh, both in order to deliver for the shareholders, obviously, but interestingly also to keep activist investors at bay.
4: And, uh, and if we zoom out, uh, PwC is expecting a total deal value of between $225 billion and $275 billion in biopharma this year. And that's opposed to what I think was 140 to 150 last year. So a big difference there. And Ernst & Young, they agree in their annual firepower report. They point to the timing of the, as you mentioned earlier, Frazier, the timing of the deals, Horizon and Amgen. That one happened in late December. And also the biggest uh, MedTech deal of 2022, J&J's purchase of Abiomed, Right. That was for $16.6 And that came near the end of the year as well. Ernst and Young just says this, you know, that's an indicator that things are loosening up, and uh, companies are have kind of rebounded from from the volatility that that was there, and uh, know how to respond now.
3: Yeah, I mean it's curious this happened at the tail end of the year, but I think it has a lot of investors and analysts excited that maybe, uh, you know, right at the start of 2023, we could be seeing you know a, a lot of folks with a lot of firepower on deck, uh, and and we'll talk a bit more about some of the potential buyers uh, on the scene in, in just a little bit. Uh, I want to get back really quick to the Re- Inflation Reduction Act. Um, you know, we've been hearing pretty much constant criticism of of the bill from drug makers and trade groups. Uh, but the analysts, uh, you know, they're thinking essentially that uh, with the bill's pricing measures a bit better understood at this point, that a lot of the uncertainty and, and maybe even paranoia that, that surrounded pharma in 2022 should be in the rearview mirror.
4: Yeah, Frazier, another analyst that I talked to, Michael Abrams of Numeroff and Abrams, he echoed that thought about the IRA. He says that industry has had time to absorb that shock, and he definitely sees an MA rebound.
3: So we started out by thinking about Amgen's Horizon deal. And I just, you know, I want to talk a bit more about what that says about a potential bucking of the the previous MN, M&A malaise. So, you know, last year, the Global Life Sciences mergers and acquisition investment totaled about $105 billion in the first 11 months of 2022. So that was uh, way down from 2021. But uh, of course, as we've alluded to, this this uh, shifted as the year closed with Johnson & Johnson and Amgen both making multi-billion dollar acquisitions. Now, this interestingly also does create a, a lot of uh, interest in potential buyers that are now on the scene. With Amgen's deal uh, for Horizon, that leaves uh, Sanofi likely with a lot of firepower in order to make deals. Um, But there are other companies that we could probably expect to uh, make moves as well. So if you look at folks like Bristol-Myers Squibb, Pfizer, GSK, they're all losing exclusivity on some of their top selling drugs in the coming years. I was also reading a Reuters report recently that uh, discussed the top 15 listed drug makers, You know that also includes companies like Moderna and Novartis and Roche, uh, saying that the, the top 15 listed drug makers have something like 400. $86 86 billion in potential M&A ammunition, and and that's according to Berenberg analysis. The Reuters was reporting on.
4: Yeah, Ernst and Young kind of echoes that. They said there's 1.4 trillion of firepower in biopharma, and they said that's 11% more than at this time last year, and it's the most that they've seen since tracking this, which has been like a decade. Ernst and Young also talked about biotech valuations being lower and making them too attractive, really, for buyers to resist anymore. And some have referred to this drop in valuations as a course correction. And one more factor with this kind of related is IPO and SPAC funding has become more scarce, and that's increasing the likelihood of M&A ac- exits from these companies, further fueling this kind of a buyer's market. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Fraser, a couple more analyst insights I've gotten uh Arda Ural of Ernst Young says that patent expirations over the next few years are going to account for $200 billion in lost revenue. And this is obviously a, a motivator for big pharma to to fill those gaps with new assets. And we're also seeing that these gaps are leading companies to separate the, their consumer units out, so they really want to focus on developing new therapeutics. Uh, Jennifer O'Brien of West Monroe believes that these divestitures will spark the M&A. She says the companies want to build out those core areas of new businesses after they divest. And she pointed to J and J spinning out Kenview, their consumer unit, and then acquiring Abiomed, which we already discussed earlier. Right. And on the other side of that, I I believe
3: really just within the last couple of days, we've heard about uh Hallion uh GSK's consumer spin out, uh itself looking at kind of bulking up to expand its business. So even the the spinout companies may be looking to make some deals of their own.
4: Yeah, Arty Ural of Ernst Young calls it divest to invest. Uh, he's got a lot of uh, <laughs> he's got a lot of one-liners. And another thing we can't ignore, I don't think, is uh, is the race to innovate, uh, and this will lead to a lot of a lot of M and A, although it may be smaller scale. You know, there's a lot of buzz with artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data, and a lot of analysts uh, think that. Uh, the industry leaders in the future will be the companies that most effectively incorporate these new tools and platforms. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for taking the time to chat with me today. All right, Fraser, good talking to you.
1: That's it for The Top Line. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's the bottom line from The Top Line.